everyone, and welcome to the Airways Podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Helwing Bonazar, and I'm here with uh, Rohan Anand and Zuneet Baskara. How are you guys doing tonight? I'm doing well. I'm in Italy. A wonderful, relaxing vacation in the Tuscany region. Tomorrow, I fly back to Chicago via British Airways, uh, flying on the A380. Uh, well, in business class, uh, and so flying from Pisa to Heathrow to Chicago, and on the way in, I flew Lufthansa on the A340-300 uh, from Chicago to Pisa through Frankfurt. Uh, that was an economy class, but it was pretty empty. Uh, how about you, Vinay? Nice. I'm doing all right. Just been a little under the weather this week, so hopefully that doesn't shine through too much um, <clears throat> when I'm talking on today's episode. But I did want to ask Rohan, last time you mentioned that you would be trying out Lufthansa's Hindu non-veg meal, which seems like an oxymoron, first of all. But Correct. you ended up trying it, and, and how was it? It was terrible. It was awful. It was like some, I don't even know what it was. Um, the thing that bothered us was that they like made an attempt at the chicken situation. But it wasn't like a chicken curry. It was just like great chicken and some like oil but they also served it with like alu gobi which is a really delicious uh cauliflower and potato mix and that's vegetarian i was like oh they might as well have just done that anyway so i think moving forward trying the non-hindu veg meal is not the move it's better to do the strip because the chicken looked good um and also the breakfast service was a chocolate muffin, and a dinky little fruit cup. So Lufthansa has really gone all out on the child menu size of their meals. It's like a happy meal, basically. Sounds like a happy meal would be tastier than whatever you were served on that flight, to be honest. Yeah, probably. I just, I, I don't really like to fly Lufthansa, but I especially wouldn't like to fly Lufthansa in economy class. So feel free, buddy. The Frankfurt transfer was so classic Frankfurt because, like, we landed and it was a later flight that gets in um, around, like, afternoon. So all of the major banks to the U.S. have left and to Asia Pacific have kind of left. So it's a lot more of a, like, U.S. to Europe sort of flow at that point. And the transit from A to Z, which literally was where I had to go, uh, was not too terrible, but of course we were bussed to our gate. I was flying Air Dolomiti um, in the Frankfurt airport. There's no AC, so everyone's just sweating away. It, it was total Frankfurt. It was it was like hashtag Frankfurt like all the way. Not my, not my, not my I favorite. actually don't like don't mind frankfurt airport either for a connection or for i mean to be fair i've flown a lot more into and out of it and immigration is reasonably quick if you're entering frankfurt um so maybe that that has colored my experiences but airport's not too bad um i do love the potato salad and the lufthansa lounges um so you know uh, your mileage may vary i suppose and, and the bus gates i feel like i gotta get <laughs> yeah, a game card if you're complaining about being bussed to your gate man at that point, there were there were there were no good views at that at that point, and the routing was really weird because you're going from like this terminal to some place where 
Air Dolomiti Park. It's so it's not like you're getting the primo views of the Tormac when you got all these cool A380s and 747s and Iraqi Airways and other things. It wasn't like that. Um, and I guess the other thing too would be that it, it, it could have been worse, but it wasn't that bad. And tomorrow, I'm hopeful that Heathrow is is good. So that's that's really I, I've had good luck at Heathrow the last couple times I've been through. So I'm just hopeful that it it, it is that way this next time around. I mean, best of luck to you, I suppose. I feel like I've always had historically not great luck trying to connect at Heathrow. Into and out of, again, is like not too bad. But the Terminal 2 at Heathrow, which is where I normally fly into off of a United flight, has no fast track immigration. Um, and that can be brutal sometimes when you've got like the whole United flight arriving and then you've got like an A380 from Singapore arriving and like some Lufthansa and a bunch of other stuff, especially post-Brexit. Have you flown... Uh, to Gatwick, yeah. yeah, like transatlantic. I flew in Norwegian to Gatwick like six years ago. At this point, Gatwick is actually not too bad from an in, in incoming immigration right. perspective because so much of it is like short haul stuff to and from Europe. Um, but the issue with Gatwick is that it's way it takes way longer to get into the city. Right, the Gatwick Express is like 35, 40 minutes. Then you again have to do another thirty-five to forty to your hotel. Whereas Heathrow, it's the Heathrow Express is 15 minutes and then you're, you know, 15, 20 minutes from your hotel if you're in West or Central London, which is where I normally uh, take up residence, as it were. Yeah, I'm done saying that I can get away both when I'm terminating in London and also when I've transited uh, to Spain, but that was pre-Brexit. And so... I don't know. Oh no! Absolutely. Oh, a while back, but from Venezuela to 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 Heathrow. But I did fly from Gatwick to Rome. Well, I think we can start with uh, two things. I think uh, the American Airlines filing a lawsuit against the travel website uh, Skiplag. Uh, apparently, uh, American says the website coaches customers on how to basically lie to airlines about their final destination. Uh, we could get into that. And we also have Qantas revealing its future international fleet plans, announcing plans to add uh, 12 Airbus A350 and 12 Boeing 787s. So which one do you want to start with? I think we start with Skip Black because mm. I thought this was really, really interesting from American. Um, and I have a hunch that Rohan and I are going to be on different sides of this issue, right? So Skip Lagged, for, for those of you who don't know, is basically a site, um, kind of, it used to just be an informational site. Now, I think it sort of also serves as a direct OTA that allows you to book tickets. Um, and the idea is it, ba it basically unlocks the ability to do what's called hidden city tickets, right? Which is basically where, let's say you're trying to fly from New York City to Charlotte, Normally, that's an expensive flight, especially because it's a very a flight dominated by American Airlines um, on either side. And so if that ticket is expensive, the idea of hidden city ticketing is you can book a connecting itinerary through Charlotte. Let's say you go okay. to Charlotte to Nashville. And then because that's cheaper, the way that you save money is you basically just take the New York to Charlotte leg, but then you don't you don't board the charlotte to nashville leg so that's the idea of like throwaway or hidden city tickets 
Um, and so the lawsuit from American is, it's sort of like getting Al Capone on tax fraud, right? In that American really doesn't like this practice, right? Because from American's perspective, it's selling you a connecting itinerary for cheaper, but then you're not taking the connecting itinerary. And so you're, you know, robbing American of, of, of revenue. You are violating the um, terms of, of service, the, the contract of carriage. And the thing that they're actually suing Skip lagged over um, is trademark um, infringement, selling tickets without Americans' authorization, and a bait and switch because consumers can find cheaper fares at AA.com. Um, so I thought this was pretty interesting. Before I get into my take on this, Rohan, what is your perspective? Did, have you been following this news? Do you have a point of view on on the morality of hidden city ticketing? So with regards to um, hidden city ticketing or married segments, which is another term that could be used in this context, uh, there's always going to be that sort of logic that separates the U.S. industry, I think, from maybe a couple other countries minus the full service carriers is that you don't encounter this kind of thing happening on Southwest, but you do with American and United. And that is because, largely speaking, these airlines were previously oriented around very traditional models of distribution. By that, I mean the airline reservation inventory months in advance it was done very manually it was done in terms of a round trip ticket with certain uh, restrictions attached to it like a saturday night stay and so forth and, and and these things have evolved over the years right and reservation systems and and means by which the distribution channels have evolved have have really shifted a lot of the power from the supplier, aka the airlines and the distributors, to the consumer. So now we're at a situation where the distributor and the consumer are being caught by the producer or the supplier, in this case, American Airlines. And as we all know, that American Airlines, United, Delta, JetBlue, Southwest, even without saying it, uh, even Alaska, you know, they notice that the deep discount airlines, the Spirits, the Frontiers, by, by doing one way ticketing, essentially could unbundle fares so that the underlying fare structure in multiple fare classes uh, could be such that it is very simplified. You know, a one-way O&D route from, uh, you know, Monday through Friday or Saturday or Sunday or whatever. So these hidden things that are used by websites are, are kind of a way in which people are still able to gain the system to get those cheap routings. And... Look, I I personally have at some point or the other, you know, cut my trip short and stayed in the city that I was connecting in. That sometimes has happened fortuitously because I had to actually, you know, fly back from Mexico to Houston and get off in Houston for something work-related rather than continuing on to Dallas, right? Or I have perhaps maybe uh, decided that I wanted to stay in Chicago rather than flying from you know, Houston to Chicago to Minneapolis because I wanted to spend a few more days in Chicago and then I could book a one-way from Chicago back to Minneapolis for $80 three days later. It really kind of just depends on the person. But when you get to a point where you're starting to really take chances with this, that's where you're going to run into problems. And so I, I'm actually more in line with you, Vinay, on this and, and sort of the, the putativeness of it. I just think that American has to go after it because 
this is something that really just unilaterally affects American, United, and Delta more than the others. I have a question. Was it didn't Southwest file a lawsuit, a similar lawsuit in twenty twenty one? Yeah, they can. However, their their connecting point model, even though it's a lot more like that than it was before, they're still more of a point to point airline than people give me credit for. Right, right. So oh, it's, it's, right. Believe, but that, that helped. did sue Skip lagged, and sure. I do think that there is like Southwest's fare model used to be super simplified. It's a single fare for every one way segment, and the quote unquote connection was just a pure like adding the two segment prices together. I don't think that's still the case. I think they sell connecting pricing yeah. these days. Yeah. No. They, they, they definitely made a lot more. And again, full disclosure, I've, I've worked in the commercial planning capacity previously at airlines but i think it's not public knowledge that um and you could read this on their you know 10ks is that they have complicated or at least um made their fare structures a lot more uh spread right because it's good for them in terms of revenue opportunities and optimization and you know they've also added other fare products in there like the want to get away plus but that's neither here nor there the the real thing comes down to this very complicated web of who is going from where to where and is it a route from tampa to charlotte is it from las vegas to albuquerque is it from you know syracuse to detroit and how do you essentially after all the mergers and acquisitions that have taken place across the u.s industry how do you essentially gain the system when it comes to fares inventory and scheduling and geographies such that you can allow this to work for you and your wallet. But at the end of the day, I think that it it's still to me at least, I'm still trying to wrap my head around and maybe either of you can answer this. What is it specifically about an American, an American's Involvement with this is it as simple as just a lawsuit regarding copyright infringement and logo and all that, or is this like you know, American has drama with a lot of its suppliers and distributors, including Saber? Right, you know, American kind of likes to see itself as this revenue management sort of prowess in the room. What is exactly causing the drama between these two? There are more links to the chain. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, Helen. I like that explanation. I want to hear more, Helen. Well, I mean, it's it's what you're saying. Um, you have Saber, you have. I mean, it, it's it's kind of like an to me at least, it's an uh, an infrastructure issue where it's really easy to access information from various points in the chain. You know, that's my my take on it. So, it's like. Salmon, yeah. he says, like the 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 founder of the website. That's why he def- he he can defend the practice uh, of the hidden city ticketing as legal, at least. Anyway, I don't know if it's ethical, but it's not illegal. I mean, I, I think the other factor that causes American to care more about this is that their business model and their revenue model is much more oriented towards feeding and serving connecting traffic um, in a way that like Delta and United both have a higher O&D revenue share. They're less reliant on connecting volume. 
part of what American has done over, over the last couple of years is really bulk up in DFW, really bulk up in Charlotte to a lesser extent in places like Phoenix. Um, and their Chicago hub obviously lags in terms of O&D, but still is a, is, a, is a big connecting complex. I think the challenge for American is that they're more reliant on connecting revenue. So they do have to be more aggressive about these connecting itineraries. Um, and in particular, I think Charlotte is a great example of this, right? Charlotte O&D fairs are ridiculous, right? I was helping a friend book a round trip from Charlotte to LAX um, last week. And it was, you know, the cheapest fare that we could find was 900 and something dollars, right? So the O&D fairs out, in and out of Charlotte are crazy. But there's a lot of oh, really cheap one-stop connections. And, you know, but okay, no, but for the, in the same block, in the same period, right? Boston, San Francisco round trip for the exact same dates was about 250 bucks. So I don't think but how many players versus Charlotte to LAX. And right. There was a point. Exactly. Right. But but my my point is that, is that Charlotte is a, is an uncompetitive O&D market, right? American is, is the, you know, the 800 pound gorilla. And so they are probably more proportionately affected by skip lagged than someone like United or Delta because United ha and Delta have more nonstop O&D flying so heard, as, as revenue share. So I heard, no like veritable proof of this, but I heard that going back to the U.S. Airways days, we're talking like pre-merger U.S. with the hubs in Phoenix, Charlotte, and Philly, one of their revenue strategies was, and I definitely fell for it a few times, was, you know, for someone going from like, say, you know, Chicago to Salt Lake, of all of the, you know, the three majors that fly that route, for example, American Delta, United Southwest, U.S. Airways would undercut them, but like $100 each way going Chicago, Phoenix to uh, Salt Lake. And, and route someone that way. And that then they were like that. They just kind of did that all across their hubs in Charlotte and Philly and Phoenix. And it was like a big Scott Kirby kind of, you know, a revenue sort of strategy that worked well for them. And then they merged with American and the, had those hubs in those same locations. And for all you know, it, it could be still part of the, the revenue DNA now leading the show at American. I don't know. That's just something I heard. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think the fact you could also see the signal in the fact that they rebanked DFW and they rebanked some of their hubs. I, I think the thing that I want to just finish up with here is the question that you hinted at, how it, which is, is this ethical? And I think this will this will be like unpopular, but I tend to lean on the side that this is unethical. Like I actually believe that, that hidden city ticketing is an unethical practice. Fundamentally, right, there's a difference between flying from Los Angeles to Charlotte and Los Angeles to Gainesville via Charlotte, right? Those are those are different products. And when you engage in hidden city ticketing, right, you're essentially paying for one product, but effectively getting another product in a, in a way that, frankly, is stealing. It, it may or may not be illegal, right? Like that's the legality of it seems to have been settled. But I do view it as unethical. And so that's why I think the Al Capone analogy that I started with is actually pretty interesting, right? It's or, 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 or pretty... Um, Apropos, because yeah, fundamentally, I think it like the underlying practice of hidden city ticketing, at least in my eyes, is unethical. They can't ban that practice directly, but they're going after skip lag on this other dimension, which is you know trademark violation and authorization to sell these tickets. And I think that that's actually a pretty um, a, a pretty apt analogy, right? Where Al Capone they didn't get him for all the right. violence; they got him for tax evasion. Right, right. It's just right. so. I, yeah, really, that, 
that's my that's my take on it. Any 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 final thoughts, Brian? Well, I guess I'm curious to know: Have any of you ever done any kind of a, you know hidden city ticketing situation, or you know hop off on you know something or the other that worked out for you? I, I admitted to a few myself, but. I was definitely not trying to game the system. In my case, it was more that my plans just kind of changed. Um, yeah, I took exactly. advantage of that. Yeah, yeah. Romantic reasons. <laughs> Rohan's got a potential <laughs> love interest in every city, and he's got to hop off. <laughs> I mean, you know, Chicago is just you know my love life is consumed by my dog. So you know, I have to have lovers outside of outside of the home base. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, having heard me just describe the practice as basically unethical, I haven't done it to the point that when I'm in a situation where, where you are, Rohan, and my plans change, I explicitly um, will, in fact, change my routing. And if there's a fair difference, pay the fair difference. Um, I, I think the, ba- the basic ethics of it are, are, I think, pretty clear to me, right? That I don't view this as an ethical practice. The airline is selling me a one-stop itinerary. I'm trying to convert that to a non-stop itinerary. I should pay what the airline is charging. Yeah. Get up to speed on the commercial aviation industry with the top stories of the week by subscribing for free to the Airways NOTAM newsletter. You won't have to worry about missing a thing. Every new edition of the Airways NOTAM goes directly to your inbox. Go to airwaysmagazine.substack.com slash subscribe. That's airwaysmagazine.substack.com slash subscribe. Okay, let's move on to, to Qantas revealing future international fleet plans. Uh, 12 Airbus A350 and 12 Boeing 787s. And I think uh, there's an A350-1000 that will be used on the on Project Sunrise. But they're also going to order, or they order uh, narrow bodies, A220s and A321 XLRs. I think the move is exactly expected from them because it is investing in the A350-1000 for the Project Sunrise routes, which will be flying nonstop from New York to Sydney slash Melbourne and from London to Sydney slash Melbourne. And the A350s already have the configurations and the specs released. Then the 787-9 has been an aircraft that it has used to expand its ultra-long call routes or to supplement for maybe expanding into markets like DFW to Melbourne. And so the aircraft can continue to be used to launch those experimental routes. Like I'm really hopeful that the Chicago Brisbane flight uh, gets reinstated because it has been announced like three times that Qantas would fly to Chicago and they have been cursed each time. Uh, and I also believe that they've mentioned Seattle in there. And I think that the 787-10 will be kind of perfect for them to be able to do these medium haul routes to places like India, Hawaii, Japan, China, Southeast Asia, and maybe even some trunk routes within Australia. The one thing I, I would kind of question maybe a little bit is, I know that this is an A330 replacement, but it seems like they didn't want to go with any smaller aircraft variants that would replace the A330. So 
They didn't go with like an E330 900 uh, Neo, which I'm sure, you know, they kind of wanted to do for simplicity. And they're also starting to hint towards the E380 retirement. And they were one of the first adopters of the E380. So, you know, this that the days of flying a lot of capacity into markets like LAX or even DFW for that matter, and just kind of spreading them out, those, those kind of might not be there, uh, you know, after 2032. You didn't mention Europe. Europe. Well, like to give them, you know, to, to unlink like Emirates and right. Can they go? Well, the Emirates, the Emirates partnership was something that Qantas started in 2012 uh, when they kind of said, we're not doing this kangaroo route with British Airways any longer. We then previously had uh, partnership flows over Singapore, Bangkok, and Hong Kong. And that would go to Frankfurt and Paris and Athens and London and what have you. And instead, Qantas said, we're going to basically make London our only year. Uh, even though it's not all right. continental European, you know, our, our, our main one. And then we're going to make this the Falcon route where everything is going to go into Dubai. We're literally having multiple daily A380s either on Qantas or on Qatar or, or sorry, Emirates going from, you know, Sydney, Melbourne, Perth, Brisbane to Dubai and then going from Dubai basically all over Europe. Uh, so it, it's why Emirates, Emirates and Etihad don't, don't have to worry too much in the near future. This Emirates partnership is, believe it or not, kind of run its course. Uh, right. That's where you see Qantas now flying nonstop from Perth to Rome and, you know, Perth to London. And they also reinstated the Singapore to London route with the A380. Uh, I think I think that the European routes that they mentioned, like Paris and, and Frankfurt, certainly could be possibilities and they could come from Perth. But I do believe... And, and having been in Australia uh, earlier in this year, uh, I think that Perth Airport has a lot of challenges with Qantas and the terminals and the gate spaces and the, the facilities. And so they kind of have to move past that uh, in order for there to be a little bit more of a gateway opportunity for it at Perth. I see. I think the really interesting thing here is just to think back to the history of Qantas's 787 orders because it's gone through these like hilarious ups and downs, right? So Qantas, way back in 05, Qantas originally placed an order for up to 150 787s, right? Um, they actually ended up taking delivery of just 25 of those. There were 40 original firm orders. They firmed up some more 7879s and they pulled way back from that. So the Qantas group, including the low-cost subsidiary Jetstar, has 14 787-9s at the mainline Qantas um, brand, which is the which are aircraft that are flying largely to the U.S., to Europe. And then they've got 11 7878s at Jetstar, which is the low-cost brand that fly to and from Asia mostly. And I think it's just really fascinating to think about what how this has evolved and the fact that Alan Joyce, the outgoing CEO of Qantas, you know, probably arguably made a mistake canceling those original 787-9s. They, there was 35 on order they canceled in 2012. Qantas was going through some financial difficulties at that point. So, I, I could, you know, the, the logic of it made sense in the moment. Um, but, you know, we've now come full circle. They're they're here with the 787-10. I, I, I tend to think that once they have the Project Sunrise aircraft, the, the Perth gateway 
in my opinion, probably gets shelved. And they'll have the 35Ks flying to New York and to London and to wherever. Then they'll have the 351,000s to do sort of some of the other US routes or some of the trunk routes to and from Asia. And then the 787 will be their main hauler for Asia and you know the A330 replacement for Trans-Tasman um, and um, and Australian routes you know, to and from the East Coast to, to, to Perth. But I think, that, yeah, the, the really interesting thing for me is just the, the question of, you know, how, how much does Qantas rue the fact that they canceled their original 787 order? Because those are planes that Qantas desperately needs, right? And in today's Australian market, they have... They don't have anywhere near enough lift for the level of demand and the surge and the return of post-COVID demands. Um, and they're, they're kind of paying the price for the short-sightedness of canceling those original 787 orders. Even if I had I would add that the COVID situation certainly impacted Australian and New Zealand aviation in a very adverse way, given how strict the lockdowns were uh, during the COVID period. And also the added element that Virgin Australia went into restructuring when it went through COVID and that ended up taking out a lot of long haul capacity from the airline because it effectively got rid of its Boeing 777-300ERs and its seven or rather Airbus A330-200s. So that's a huge chunk of the international and, and wide body seat capacity that Virgin Australia no longer was flying, uh, that the market had to observe, absorb, and, and Qantas, you know, not really being capable of receiving that. Yeah, and I, I think you've seen the, the U.S. carriers in particular really dive back in to Australia, right? United added service from San Francisco to Brisbane. It's bulked up capacity to Australia um, and to New Zealand. Uh, American has bulked up capacity to Australia and New Zealand, so obviously that that's a Qantas JD partner, so there's a little bit less pain in that for for, for Qantas. But yeah, fr- frankly, there's been a huge surge of demand to and from Australia, from especially from especially from the US, and you're starting to see Asia come back as well. But they haven't been able to capitalize on it because they didn't have enough wide bodies. And I think the other dynamic here is that they're not really planning for that much growth, right? If you if you look at the, the size of this order today, the wide body fleet is 26 A330s. Um, 16200s, 10300s, 10A380s, and 14779s. Mm. They've got 12 787s on order and 24, um, you know, uh, A350s on order. So let's call that 36 jets. That's and they're only right. There's no A350. All thousands. And so that's 36 plain wide bodies on order and 36, let's call them old gen wide bodies in the fleet, 10A380s and then the 26 A330s. So there's literally not even a plan for for growth here, um, which is sort of like sort of like Qantas repeating the mistakes of the past in my eyes a little bit. I think Qantas is subject to the same kind of constraints in some ways and, and complexities that an airline like, you know, in the U.S. or Canada kind of have to encounter where they have multiple coastal hubs, they have domestic to international feed, there's transcontinental feed, there's diaspora feed. Um, there's a lot that goes into the mix. And I do think that it would be cool to plug Brian Sumers, who was uh, on our podcast last episode, who runs Airline Observer. But they published a really interesting article today about that capacity growth in, in New Zealand and Australia that Air New Zealand, from their perspective, is having to contend with. 
because, uh, you know, Air New Zealand and Qantas do have a lot of overlap, right? The end of line countries, as I talked about, you know, Qantas is upping its New York flights. And I'm not talking about the New York to LAX to Sydney flights that once were a thing where, you know, it could feed into Brisbane, into Melbourne, into Sydney, maybe even Auckland at one point. No, this New York flight is now going daily, but it is into Auckland. And Auckland gives them a lot more pull into Australia, into a lot more markets than LAX could, right? And so for those same reasons, there's Air New Zealand, right? And how it's going to contend with this U.S. capacity. Because, and this is the final thing I'll say on this note, people may not realize that the U.S. to Australia, New Zealand market has actually not been that liberalized for that long. In fact, it was... Only as recently as 2008, 2008, I was doing an economics paper on this. The route authorities essentially expanded from the U.S. to Australia to enable airlines besides United and Qantas from flying in there. So that's when you saw Delta jet, uh, jump in. So on this thought, I think people don't realize how the U.S. to Australia market is actually relatively recent remember that i did a paper on this in undergrad back around 2008 uh 2009 but basically up until that period only Qantas had flown non-stop between the u.s and australia and that was something that changed when the bilateral agreements allowed for other airlines to come in so that's when you saw delta uh and eventually the australia which became virgin australia came in and then american with the joint venture with Qantas. so that market has undergone a lot of change just within the last 15 years. So for those reasons, I think that the evolution of the U.S.-Australia market in terms of capacity, in terms of reach, uh, in terms of growth, and in terms of connection, I, I mean, anecdotally, I have a lot of friends in Chicago alone that happen to be Australian. They're either my neighbors or people that I went to business school with, and they've married, but their families are still back in Australia, right? So... For them, commuting back and forth between the US and Australia is something that they do multiple times a year. And you're starting to see that more and more with people uh, in terms of just kind of the travel demand. So I think that also it plays well into the, uh, you know, the narrative of being able to flex your wide body aircraft according to seasons when you fly between hemispheres. And that's, of course, why Qantas is investing in precisely zero new wide bodies for growth. Our latest issue is now available at airwaysmag.com slash shop, where you'll be able to get an Airways digital subscription, find Airways merchandise, and pre-order the 2024 Airways calendar. That's airwaysmag.com slash shop. Okay, um, I did want to mention something. I don't know if you want to talk about it really quickly. The JetBlue Spirit document leak, where they want to rate, raise fares up by forty percent. So, I I I know what you're referencing, right? There was this redacted legal document that basically found some JetBlue staffers, execs, whomever, saying that they would be raising Spirit Airlines's fares by up to forty percent post merger. And I think I had two reactions to this. The first was, duh, right? There's no way you. JetBlue, an airline with JetBlue's cost structure, could buy Spirit and not raise fares, right? Because Spirit has by far the lowest fares. 
I do think that the 40% number is a bit overstated, though. And the reason is that if you're going to convert Spirit's route structure to JetBlue and Spirit's fare structure to JetBlue's fare structure, remember that JetBlue does not have as ancillary heavy of a strategy as Spirit does, right? For, for a long time, in fact, JetBlue was along with Southwest, one of the carriers that allowed a free first check bag, though they eventually got rid of that for their lowest tier fares. But, you know, that 40% number, yeah, maybe there's a 20% true total travel cost increase that is just going to happen because JetBlue has higher costs. But I think some of that is because there are parts of the Spirit experience, like a free carry-on bag or whatever, that are not going to be part of how JetBlue sells those fares. So I think there's a part of it which is yeah no 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 um curse word right in the sense that like yeah well it's, they're going it's obvious it's obvious and then there's a part of it which is the mass of what JetBlue needs to charge for base fare is going to be higher because they don't have as strong of an ancillary revenue generation no i mean they're and they mentioned a 24 percent but i mean like i read here the leak document suggests that JetBlue plans to increase fares on on aircraft, it acquires from Spirit by at least 24%. Why is everyone acting like this is big news? I mean, yeah, of course they are. I mean, this this merger, right. I've, said this, I've said this once, I'll say it again, this merger does not make sense. It never made sense. You know, Spirit and Frontier make sense. JetBlue and Spirit do not make sense. It's only for JetBlue to grow its appetite and for spirit to just kind of allow itself to, you know, move on to the next phase of its life. But it's not, uh, it's not going to be a well orchestrated, well planned, well baked merger. I think it's going to entangle itself with a lot of messiness. Um, and I don't really know what JetBlue is wanting out of this that makes it worth all the fight planes it and the planes i have planes and pilots i get yeah but and it needs to improve uh the service hence the the increase which makes sense again right i mean yeah, i can go from blue. spirit who's going to charge you for a bottle of water to jensen exactly. who's going to give you free snacks like that's right. not free right right exactly i i i think that the reaction to this is sort of a classic case of the general negativity bias towards businesses and towards um, it just just in general within within the media, um, it's not it's not shocking. I, I might separately believe that the the merger will probably cause an increase in fares. Now, I tend to take a more holistic view, which is to say something like JetBlue is really interesting in that it probably increases fares for the lowest priced bargain based fit traveler, but a larger JetBlue probably reduces fares on net relative to carriers like American and Delta and United. And so the total effect on airfares in the United States could be could be really interesting because my, my, my general guess would be that any any sort of bottom of the barrel routes that JetBlue, you know, pulls out spirit capacity from Frontier or Allegiant or Avello or someone else is going to backfill that, that capacity. Meanwhile, if JetBlue can actually get these planes to grow, it might really have a meaningful effect on fares in places like Boston or New York City, where JetBlue is the competition for a carrier like Delta or like United. So I tend to be a little bit less um, 
you know, dogmatic in how I th- how I think about the impact on fares because I think it you'll see a decrease in ULCC capacity, but an increase in near legacy capacity, and and that has unpredictable effects on airfares. Is is my general take on this? Yeah, there's that. It, it, yeah, I think I agree with with you, Vinay. Um, that's all. That's all I want in my life, Halloween, is for you to agree with me. I know. I know. It's just business. Uh, um, I think that we're good for today. I don't know if any of you have trivia for this episode. Well, I, before we get into trivia, do you want to just remind everyone to uh, share and, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts? Um, and of course, a reminder that if you want the full length episodes, including like the last 20 minutes of our interview with Brian Summers and you know, special segments on, on every episode, you do have to subscribe to the Airways NOTAM over on Substack. Um, it's yeah, eight bucks a month, pretty affordable for, you know, a couple extra hours of me, Rohan, and Elwing each month in your ears. And if you are listening to us on Apple or Spotify or anywhere else, please do leave us a review. Um, yeah, preferably, definitely five stars. If it's less than five stars, we will be um, unhappy with you, so... Yeah, no, for sure. And thank you for those who have who have subscribed. Um, this really helps us and motivates us. And 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 we're improving our production value uh, over time. So so your your support really really helps. So thank you. It's been a lot of fun, and also we love interaction. So share us on your socials. Definitely. Uh, share us with your friends, consider becoming a subscriber, and then also suggest topics, what you guys would like. If you don't like the podcast, share us with your enemies. Like, you know, all engagement is good engagement. Right. Thank you, guys, um, as always. Okay, so I do have a trivia. It's because it's about American Airlines, but it's more of a aircraft trivia. Okay, yeah, let's get into it. No, no, let's get into it. Okay, okay. This is probably really easy. Uh, what was the name of the first American Airlines aircraft to feature a glass cockpit? And what year was it introduced? Any guesses? I'm going to guess Boeing 757. I'm going to lose my Avgi card just like Rohan complaining about bus gates. Let's say Boeing 757, 1985. Okay. No. Vinay, the decade is there, but I mean, yeah, my my other two guesses would have been the seven six seven, right? The the co generation. I mean, I can give you four guesses and the correct one included or not. I mean, it's just normally we save it for the next episode, but okay, yeah, it's okay. It's okay. I'll 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 keep I'll keep my original seven fifty seven guess. No, 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 no. You have to guess the MD eighty two or the MD eighty three. You don't you don't get to weasel out like that. Come on now. Well, let's st- let's stick to that. Rohan, Rohan the MD-80s, and Boeing for Vinay. Uh, the year, well, we'll see. You'll have to tune in next time to see who was right. And my guess is probably Rohan. Somehow this is still easier than that that Airways trivia question from, from last time. Like, I, I, I have that that deck of cards here. The next one is, I, I just pulled out one at random. What is the highest elevation civil airport in the U.S.? These these are these questions are are hard. I, I feel like we 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 both, all three of us need our, our yes. Did you did you order it or did you find it like at the Barnes Nobles? 
Um, I, I met up with Steve, um, who's the new owner and publisher of here at Airways, and um... oh, super! By the way, everyone, you can also get uh, the latest issue of the Airways magazine at Barnes and Nobles. Please, your comments, feedback, uh, do do send that to us. Uh, so, thank you very much. Thank you, Rohan Binet. Thanks, guys. Have a good weekend, man. All right. Sounds good. I, I'm expecting you to report back when you're stranded at Heathrow for 2010. Right. Wrong, but. <laughs> well, you keep us posted. On that note, <laughs> good seeing you. Good chatting with both of you. And uh, we'll see you all next week. 